Uh, turning your Bibles then to 1 Kings, page 299 in the Church Bible. Many years ago I set out a Genesis and I think I've worked my way through all of the books up to this point but I've also broken that up with many other sermons and that is uh, a pattern that I want to maintain and I want to return then to the history of Israel and to this first book of Kings. In a moment I'm going to read a number of sections uh, from this lengthy chapter. But first of all I want to introduce what I'm going to say by this. When Queen Elizabeth eventually dies, it will be the end of an era. She has been Queen, if I remember rightly, since 1952. She has provided a measure of continuity and stability, but sooner rather than later, the Elizabethan era, or at least Elizabeth, the second Elizabethan era, will come to an end. Change is inevitable. Here in 1 Kings, we are facing a similar situation. The end of an era. David is now an old man, probably around 70 years of age. He is old, he is advanced in years, he cannot uh, maintain his life very much longer, he is bedridden, he cannot keep warm, and he is nearing the end of his days. Adonijah, who is his fourth son, the oldest surviving son, has an ambitious plan to make himself king in the place of his father, David. And this chapter records that he has actually put that into practice. He is in the process of seizing the throne and the kingdom for himself. Now I want to read selected portions from this first chapter. Words from the lips of the key people in this chapter, the prophet Nathan, the mother of Solomon and one of the wives of David, Bathsheba, from the lips of David the king himself, and finally Jonathan, who is the son of one of the priests, Abiathar, who has sided with Adonijah in his attempt to seize power. First of all, I want to read the words of Nathan, the prophet, to Bathsheba in verses 11 to 13. So Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, have you heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David, our Lord, does not know it? Come, please, let me now give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. 
Go immediately to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord, O king, swear to your maidservant, saying, Assuredly your son Solomon shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. Why then has Adonijah become king? And then we read a few verses on, Bathsheba goes to David. Verse 17, then she said to him, My Lord, you swore by the Lord your God to your maidservant, saying, Assuredly Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. So now look, Adonijah has become king, and now, my lord the king, you do not know about it. He has sacrificed oxen and fattened cattle and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army, but Solomon your servant, he is not invited. And as for you, my lord, O king, the eyes of all Israel are on you, that you should tell them who will sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise it will happen when my lord the king rests with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted as offenders. And then the words of Nathan to David. He comes in after Bathsheba, verse 24. And Nathan said, My lord, O king, have you said, Adonijah shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne. For he has gone down today and has sacrificed oxen and fattened cattle and sheep in abundance and has invited all the king's sons and the commanders of the army and Abiathar the priest. And look, they are eating and drinking before him and they say, Long live King Adonijah. But he has not invited me, me, your servant, nor Zadok the priest, nor Beniah, the son of Jehoiada, nor your servant Solomon. Has this thing been done by my lord the king? And you have not told your servant who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? Are you picking up the key phrase? There's one phrase that keeps on occurring. Who is going to sit on the throne of the king after him? That's the concern of Nathan, Bathsheba, and it's going to become now the concern of David. Listen to David's words now in response to Bathsheba. Verse 29. The king took an oath and said, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from every distress, just as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Assuredly Solomon your son shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. So I certainly will do this day. And then the decisive words of David to Zadok, Nathan and Benaiah in verse 32 to 37 King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king. The king also said to them, Take with you the servants of your lord and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule and take him down to Gion. There like Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet, anoint him king over Israel and blow the horn and say, Long live King Solomon. Then you shall come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne and he shall be king in my place. For I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. Benaiah the son of Jehoiada answered the king and said, Amen. May the Lord God of my Lord the king say so too. 
As the Lord has been with my Lord the King, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord King David. And then finally the words in the other camp. Jonathan's report back to Adonijah, verse 46. He is reported, and I'm not going to read it in the earlier verses, 43 and so on. He's reported of what Nathan and Zadok have done at Gion, and says the consequence of this, verse 46, and Solomon sits on the throne of the kingdom. And moreover, the king's servants have gone to bless our Lord King David, saying, May God make the name of Solomon better than your name, and may he make his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. Also the king said thus, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has given one to sit on my throne this day, while my eyes see it. And then we read, So all the guests who were without Elijah were afraid and arose, and each one went his way. Nine times in this chapter you have that phrase referring to sitting on the throne of the king after him, or words very similar to that. That is the burning concern of this chapter. Who will sit on David's throne? And it is not simply a question about David's throne and David's kingdom. This concerns the future of the promise that God gave to David concerning his kingdom and concerning his throne. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, words that Nathan the prophet had given to him soon after David had actually become king in Hebron and then in Jerusalem. So it is not simply a personal thing with David. This concerns the future of the kingdom of God. The kingdom that will eventually come into being as the kingdom of Christ. This is the kingdom of Christ. And it is a crucial time. It is a dangerous time. And Nathan the prophet grasps the significance of what is happening. We will see that he is a key actor in this chapter. He is the one who can see the full significance at the time of this crisis, though he could not see the full significance of the fulfilment of the promise to David being fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. So who will sit on David's throne is not just an interesting historical question. It concerns the outworking of God's eternal plan and purpose. I want to draw attention first of all this evening to Adonijah. I will describe him as an ambitious usurper who is a threat to the throne and kingdom of David. Adonijah, the ambitious usurper. He was the fourth son of David. He had been born in Hebron. Amnon, Absalom had died and probably another son who is the third son, Kiliab, we may have no mention of him. We assume therefore that he had died which made 
in Adonijah's eyes, therefore, he was the obvious person to take control of the kingdom. But Adonijah, although he was not he was not of the same mother as Absalom, he had something of Absalom's spirit and example in him. He exalted himself. We are introduced to him in verse 5. Adonijah the son of Haggith exalted himself saying, I will reign. I will be king. Literally, I will reign. Notice it says, he exalted himself. He is asserting himself. He is taking control. He's taking matters into his own hand. And he prepared chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him. Does that ring any bells? Absalom had done precisely the same thing when he had stolen away the hearts of the people of Israel in the days of David earlier on. Adonijah is presented to us as a man of unholy ambition. A man who exalted himself. A man who was proud and arrogant and had something of the spirit of Absalom about him. He had a lust for power and for position. He was an opportunist. He was prepared to take advantage of his aged father who lay bedridden. Weak and dying. He had a certain charisma. He had his brother's Absalom's good looks. We are told that quite clearly. Uh, there in verse, uh, verse 6, he was also very good looking. His mother had borne him after Absalom. He was able to gather from the army, Joab, the key man in David's army, David's right-hand man. He was able also to persuade Abiathar, another key figure in David's kingdom, one of the priests who had been loyal to David. He managed to take him into his confidence and to steal away Joab's and Abiathar's and his son Jonathan's loyalty to David. And with this strong support party, he organised a great feast just outside the city of Jerusalem in the Kidron Valley. He invited his brothers. He invited the king's sons. He invited anybody he could get from Judah and the king's servants. And we are told there was a number of conspicuous absentees. Verse 10. He did not invite Nathan, the prophet, Benaiah, the mighty men, or Solomon, his brother. I provide you that as a brief summary of this man, his character, presenting him to you as an ambitious usurper. The writer here presents him in a negative kind of way, and that is quite deliberate. He exalted himself. That's the first thing we hear about him. I will be king. This is an act of rebellion. It is an attempted coup in which he shows contempt for his father and for the Lord God of Israel. He is not afraid to assert himself against God, 
to assert himself against David and to seek to establish him. Say sorry, to seek to establish himself as king. There is though one other thing we need to note about this man Adonijah in verse 6. It's in brackets, but it is very important. And his father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, Why have you done so? Literally, his father had not pained him at any time by saying, Why have you done so? He'd never crossed him. He had never crossed this man, this son. He'd never crossed his will. He had never rebuked his folly. And Adonijah, as a result, had grown up disrespectful to his father, not respecting the authority that God had given him as the king, and not respecting God himself. Adonijah is no longer a boy. He is a young man. He is the son now of David who is dying and he is responsible for his conduct. But David also is reaping what he has sown. Now it is possible even if David had raised him in the right way and had trained him and had broken his will and taught him to respect authority, there is still a perversity in the hearts of men and in the hearts of boys and of girls as they grow up to turn away from those very things that they have been taught. But David did not pain his son. David did not train him. David did not discipline him. David did not rebuke him. David did not restrain him. And the absence of that affectionate restraint and training and the breaking of a sinful, stubborn will that is vital to the raising of our children was not evidenced in the life of David and Adonijah. And Proverbs 19 and verse 18 says, if you don't chasten your son, it's like a death sentence. It's a lack of love and it's passing the death sentence. And I would say, by way of an important aside, that those of you who are now parents, who intend, under God's blessing, to become parents, be under no illusion as to your principal task in training your sons and your daughters. Train them in obedience to you and to God. You are called to break that stubborn self-will and it will not come only by verbal rebuke. It will also mean that you have to apply a measure of the rod. That is what the scriptures say. That is what David did not do. And we are seeing the sad consequences of this on this occasion here. Train them in obedience. Train them to respect you. Do so with love. 
But they must come to the point where they recognize authority. Matthew Henry pointedly says, in his father's eyes, Adonijah was always a jewel, but now he is a thorn in his flesh. And David could justifiably point the finger at himself and saying, I'm reaping what I'm sowing, what I've sown. Yet at the same time, Adonijah is fully responsible for his rebellion against God and against his father. And if you have children who have grown up rebellious and you have done your very utmost to train them in the right way and they remain rebellious, they are responsible before God. They are accountable before God for their conduct and for their behaviour. But I've said that Adonijah shows contempt for God and shows contempt for his father. It is an act of rebellion. Why do I say that? Because Adonijah knew that Solomon was God's chosen king to succeed David. In 1 Chronicles 22 verses 9 to 10, Nathan, who has been involved in the word of the giving of the word of the Lord all along. And this is why Adonijah excludes him from his party, from his coronation party. It is quite clear that it was a known fact, certainly to David's family, Solomon was God's chosen king. That is why Bathsheba brings this plea, why Nathan brings this plea. Adonijah then was an ambitious usurper seeking to seize power. The threat to the kingdom is real. The danger is real. A great king is about to die, to expire. And now Adonijah, Joab and Abiathar are seeking to seize power. Adonijah is like Absalom before him and perhaps even Saul. You remember how God says he does not look upon the outward appearance of a man. He's looking at the heart. That's why Saul was very good looking. He was head and shoulders above everybody else. Absalom certainly was a good looker. And you remember how he boasted about his great shock of hair. Had it cut only once a year and then weighed it to see how heavy it actually was. That was the kind of man that he was. But Absalom had been removed. Absalom had failed. Another man who tried to divide the kingdom, Sheba, he had also failed to divide the kingdom. And here is Adonijah. Here is he, rebelling, showing his sin, his pride, his ambition, his ungodliness. He was disqualified by his very character from being a righteous king. And if you have any sensitivity to what is going on here, any knowledge of the scripture, anything of the mind of our Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saying to yourself, that kind of ungodliness cannot and will not succeed. Sooner or later, he is going to come unstuck, because the wicked do not prosper. The ungodly, God will bring down and humble them. And God's plans and God's purposes must prevail. 
The counsel of the Lord, we read in Psalm 33 and verse 11, stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Is this man Adonijah about to set aside and replace the promises that God has given to David through his servant, the prophet Nathan? You see, we must read this in the light of what has gone before. And if you read in the light, you know that this thing is going to fail. It must fail. It cannot come to pass. Is it then any surprise that by the end of this chapter, we find in verse 50 that Adonijah, in fear and panic, has gone into the tabernacle and taken hold of the horns of the altar and is pleading with Solomon for his life. He's failed. He has failed. In chapter 2, he dies. In fact, he's put to death by Solomon because he is still displaying a rebellious spirit. Now, do we just sit back and say, well, the promises of God are there, those promises, that counsel of the Lord must stand. God is sovereign. Therefore, it will all come to pass anyway, won't it? It's all in his providence. Well, yes, it is. But men and women are part of the means that God uses to work out his providence and his purposes and his plans. And I want us now to look secondly at Nathan, the vigilant and loyal friend of the throne and kingdom of David. In verses 11 to 27 of this chapter, we see Nathan's vigilance, we see Nathan's loyalty, and we see his true allegiance, his friendship. He is a friend not only of David, he is a friend of God and of God's plans and God's purposes. He is a loyal servant of Jesus Christ, if I may put it that way. Now, some commentators have presented Nathan as if he were as ruthless as Adonijah. They say, well, David is senile. There is no evidence in the chapter that although he is bedridden, that he is senile. And what they say is, well, he was pulling the wool over the eyes of a weak and senile king. The vow that David is said to have sworn, Nathan and Bathsheba made up and exploited the infirm king David. I would suggest to you that that is something which is simply not to be found in the passage at all. There is no evidence for that kind of interpretation. Nathan is crucial in the events of this chapter. He is a crucial part of the providence of God. God raised up this man. His part is vital. He acts as a loyal and vigilant friend, devoted to the servants, a devoted servant of David, and he is the prophet of the Lord. There is no direct revelation here, interestingly. He has spoken a word from the Lord in days gone by, but not on this occasion. He intervened, though crucially. He had a plan. A plan to preserve the kingdom, to stir David up into action, and his actions saved the day. 
And in the hands of God, the kingdom did not pass into the hands of Adonijah, but into the hand of Solomon. This man saw what was going on. He saw the wickedness and the rebellion and the whole direction in which the kingdom was going if it fell into the hands of Adonijah. So he goes to Bathsheba and tells her to go to David and then says, you go to David and tell him what is going on, remind him of the vow that he has made and he says, when you finish saying that, I will come in and I will under, I will, I will underline what you have said because it says, doesn't it, in the scripture, in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Nathan seems to be acting upon that principle. We need to inform David of this attempted coup. So he says, you go, and then I will go, and we will confirm what is going on. Now, can we justify saying that Nathan is a loyal friend and a vigilant devotee of David and the kingdom and of God's course? Well, let us remind ourselves in the first place that Nathan was the man most closely associated with David and the promises God had given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 regarding the building of the temple and regarding the future of the kingdom and the throne of David and that his successors would sit upon that throne forever. Nathan was the prophet whom God sent to David. Also, secondly, we can justify this because in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verses 24 and 25 it is Nathan who comes to David after the birth of Solomon to Bathsheba. We read in verse 24, David comforted Bathsheba his wife and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son and he called his name Solomon and the Lord loved him. And he sent word, that is God sent word, by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. Now that is an indication of the intimacy that Nathan had with David and the intimacy that God had and Nathan had with God himself. These are words from the Lord that Nathan had brought to David concerning the kingdom, the temple, concerning Solomon. It may well be that that passage there in 2 Samuel is an indication that Solomon is to be the future king who will take the place of David when he died. Whether that is actually the case or not, what we have to say is that Nathan, because of his intimacy with God and because of his intimacy with David, would have been familiar with the oath that David had sworn concerning Solomon. Nathan knew the mind of God. Nathan had Israel and David and Solomon's interests at his heart. He was concerned about Bathsheba. He realised that if Adonijah seized power, there would be curtains for Solomon and for Bathsheba because of that kind of ruthlessness that characterised Adonijah. And also, 
also, and I think this is very important, at a time of crisis, he refused to side with Joab and Abiathar. There was a loyal, a disloyal rather, group of people who were being taken in under Adonijah's charismatic leadership. And it would have been very easy for anyone then to have sided with that kind of disloyalty. But Nathan was not such a man. And Adonijah knew that he was not such a man, so he didn't invite him. Because he knew that to invite Nathan would be a great mistake. Because Nathan had already stamped his authority. Nathan had already shown the kind of man that he was. And Adonijah knew Nathan was not a man to have on a side of rebellion because he would not be loyal to that rebellion. Nathan was a man then who was loyal. Nathan was a man who was vigilant and he was concerned for the future of the kingdom of God. And such loyalty in times of crisis, such vigilance in times of crisis, when others are forsaking God and the cause of God and the righteous cause of God, that is a vital ingredient in any age, in any generation, in any church, to the success and progress of the kingdom of God. Nathan's actions are acts of faithfulness to God and faithfulness to David. This man discerned what was going on and discerning what was going on and being the kind of man that he was, he acted and his action preserved the kingdom and the righteousness of the kingdom. Such acts of loyalty and vigilance and faithfulness are constantly required to preserve the church of Jesus Christ. What kind of man do you need in a crisis? A man like Adonijah, who is unprincipled and ambitious and proud and arrogant? Or do you need someone who is a man of principled loyalty, a man of vigilance, a man of faithfulness, a man of integrity, who will be a principled man of action? That is the kind of man Nathan was. He was God's man for the hour. And the church of Jesus Christ requires such men and such women. We must stand constantly against all kinds of ungodliness. We must defend the church against false doctrine, against sinful schism against allowing scandalous behaviour to go unchecked. It takes vigilance, it takes courage to exercise church discipline. But if the cause of Christ is to be advanced in the heart of a crisis, then such men are needed. Not just one, although Nathan is one, but the more you have, the stronger the cause of Christ will be. Let us pray that God will make us such men and such women and give us such men and such women. That whatever crisis we face as a church, we may be able to face it with that same kind of faithfulness that characterised 
Nathan. But then thirdly, let us look at David. We've seen Adonijah, the ambitious usurper. We've seen Nathan, the loyal and vigilant friend. Now let's look at David, the decisive defender of the throne and of the kingdom. Nathan's intervention was crucial. It preserves the kingdom, but it still takes the decisive decision by David to secure the future of the throne and the kingdom by entrusting it to Solomon. Now David knows that the kingdom is not his. Yes, he is the king, but he didn't seize it. He didn't seek it. It had been given to him by the Lord. Look at his testimony in verse 29. He is old, he is infirm, he certainly is not senile. He says as he takes an oath, as the Lord lives, and now he reflects over his life, who has redeemed my life from every distress. Remember as we went through David's life and saw how many times Saul trying to kill him, we lost count. We lost count. And then his distress at the time of his sin with Bathsheba, his murder of Uriah, and the mess that he brought down on his own head, when God said, the sword will not depart from your house. But here he is, 70 years of age, he's saying, the Lord has redeemed my life from every distress. That's his testimony. And then he says in verse 30, summoning Bathsheba, he reaffirms that oath that he made to her, just as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Assuredly Solomon your son shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. So I certainly will do this day. He summons Bathsheba. He says, This is what I'm going to do. And then immediately he summons Zadok, Nathan, Benaiah, to anoint Solomon publicly, at Gion. That is close to where Adonijah is holding this feast. He is aged, he is infirm, he is bedridden, he cannot be directly involved himself, but the definitive decision has been made. He acts with decisiveness for the zeal, with a zeal for God, defending God's name, defending God's kingdom that has been entrusted to him. The promises have been given to him. He is the head of the kingdom. He is the one who is responsible to shepherd and to care for the people of Judah and of Israel. And the future of that kingdom is put into his hands. And therefore he must act decisively. And we do not get it in English, but verse 35 is decisive language in Hebrew. He says, Then you shall come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne. And he shall be king. He shall rule. Adonijah has said, I will rule. David says, no. I have made a vow in the light of all that God has done for me. In the light of all the promises that God has given me. Solomon shall be king. He shall rule in my place. For I have appointed him. I've commanded him. And he will be the ruler over Israel and Judah. David is acting 
with all his royal authority invested in him by God. Here is one of his last great acts, the entrusting of his kingdom to Solomon. The one who has received the divine revelation, the one who in grace has been given a son to Bathsheba after his terrible sin with her and the murder of her husband. Solomon is the one whom God has appointed. And David appoints him as king and thrusts Adonijah out of the picture. We read in verse 36 of Benaiah's response. This man is in full and hearty agreement. Now, I don't think Benaiah was some midget. He was one of David's mighty men. So my guess is he was a pretty tall, strong man. And I don't think he just whimpered out a quiet Amen. My impression is, I may be wrong and I may be reading it into, but if he was one of David's mighty men who'd already won a name for himself, his Amen would not have been quietly spoken in a corner. Most likely it was a spontaneous bellow as he was in full agreement with what David had decreed. An enthusiastic and zealous agreement. Amen. May the Lord God of my Lord, the King, say so too. May God be in agreement with what you've just done. As the Lord has been with my Lord, the King, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord, King David. If Jonathan had heard those words, his knees ought to have been knocking. This man was the royal bodyguard. He was the one who was in charge, preserving the life of David and, by implication then, Solomon. So if you're going to tangle, you're going to tangle with this man. And Jonathan goes back and reports precisely what has taken place. Nathan's intervention was crucial. David's decisive action saves the throne for Solomon and secures it. Adonijah's attempted coup falls apart. When Jonathan goes back and reports what has taken place. We read in verse 49, just one verse. All the guests who were with Adonijah were afraid and arose and each one went his way. The writing was on the wall. Adonijah, you have failed and failed abysmally and completely. It's time we went. And Adonijah's pride and his arrogance turns to fear and he runs into Jerusalem to lay hold of the horns of the altar. Solomon in mercy at that point dismisses him back to his house with a severe censure and a warning saying that if he is disloyal in the future it will cost him his life. Now you might ask if such a dangerous and dramatic moment was taking place in the history of the nation David was the first of the great dynasty that was to come to fulfilment in Jesus Christ. 
Saul was not part of that dynasty. He was a Benjamite. David was of the tribe of Judah. David is the one who stands in the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. David is the one who is mentioned in Matthew 1 and in Luke chapter 3. And throughout those incarnation accounts, it is the house of David that is crucial. Now I know Solomon and Adonijah are of the house of David. But it is not Adonijah in whom this line is to run. It is Solomon by the appointment of God. But you might well ask, here we are in the face of a crisis. Why then is there no miraculous intervention on the part of the Lord that for, for all intents and purposes just removes Adonijah out of the picture? And why is there no miraculous intervention that establishes Solomon as the king? It's an interesting question. And I think there is an answer. Because anyone reading this chapter with any knowledge of what's gone before and what is coming afterwards sees the hand of God in what is taking place. But here we see how God sometimes preserves his kingdom. He does not always intervene in a miraculous manner. He establishes Solomon as king on the one hand by the loyalty and the vigilant action and friendship of a faithful Nathan, his prophet, and by the decisiveness and zeal of an old, frail, weak, bedridden man. And by these means, God is pleased to overthrow wickedness and remove this ungodliness and threat of a coup. It is by human means. And we can see that they are not exactly, in David's case, a fit and healthy means. As you read your Bible, you read of God working out his plans and his purposes. We read of a God who is infinite and yet all-powerful, who guides and directs the affairs of nations and of Israel and of Judah and paves the way for the coming of his Son, Jesus Christ, and the overthrow of all the kingdoms of this world and all opposition, so that there is one name that is exalted above every name, the name of Jesus Christ. And it all hangs, at this particular point, on the actions of two men, Nathan and David. Ultimately, of course it all depends upon the one who sits now on David's throne. And who is that? The Lord Jesus, raised from the dead and exalted at God's right hand. David will soon die, but nothing of God changes in the face of David's weakness and imminent death. The promises of the kingdom to David stand because they are the counsel of God. They are the plans that must stand for generation after generation. 
And Adonijah is not going to stand in the way and set aside those promises of God. We live in a day and an age that has far more in common with Adonijah and the spirit of Adonijah than the spirit of Nathan and the spirit of David. People in our day and age reject God and reject the Bible as the word of God. They would, I think many of them say, well we want to promote this kind of freedom that Adonijah had. Why should we follow God's ways? Why should we obey our parents? Why should we be under authority? Why should we be put in chains? They may not put it as strongly as that. But that's what they are saying. And they want to flaunt their own godless pride and ambition. You may have seen a few days ago the musician, the singer Elton John wants to ban organised religion. Why? Because he says it inspires hatred against homosexuals. That's the kind of spirit of the age we're living in. We've seen the open opposition to Christianity. We know the moral decline. Some of you have heard the vague and unintelligible words of church leaders who try to explain what Christianity is about and their words just evaporate into the air. There's nothing to say. They have no conviction. They have no authority. They have nothing of the word of God, it seems. And we are living in those days. We are living in this kind of age. It is a precarious time. It is a difficult time to be a Christian in this country in 2006. But I would ask you, has anything of God's will and plan and purpose altered in this crisis? Has anything? No. Has the arm of his omnipotence suddenly grown weak? Has he grown weary and decayed? Has he got old like David? Is he weak and bedridden? Such ideas are blasphemous. The cause is God's. The kingdom is Christ's. And the promises to David remain and will remain until the earth is removed. Human power will decay. Youthful vigour will fade. But we are not like God. God is infinite and eternal and unchangeable. Jesus Christ is not dead and buried like David is in Jerusalem. He is alive, seated at the right hand of his Father. And the church is safe in his hands. He is almighty, all power and authority has been given to him. And it is in the light of those things that we are to live. Yes, we see the decline. Yes, we see the opposition. Yes, it is difficult. Yes, there is a crisis. But the question is, who is going to serve God faithfully in this crisis, in this particular hour? We're not called to live in the 19th century. We're not called to live in another 50 years' time. We are called to live now and to be faithful now and to live as Christian men and women now. 
You say, I'm old and infirm like David. I'm getting, I'm getting weaker by the day. Look what David did. Even in his weakness and in his frailty, he still acted decisively for God. Look at Nathan. Look at the kind of man that he was. Look at Nathan. Look at David. These are the kind of men and women that we need. And these are the kind of men and women that God uses in his wise providence to promote the cause of Christ in this world. Not many mighty, not many powerful, not many influential, but the weak and the despised things of this world, and the weak and despised people of this world. The foolishness of Christ and of Christ crucified, and the foolishness of preaching Christ crucified. But it is by men and women who are vigilant by men and women who are faithful to God, by men and women who are loyal friends of Christ and of his kingdom. Even older, weaker men and women who show still a decisive zeal for the honour and glory of Christ. That is the kind of stuff that God uses That's the kind of people that God uses in order to promote his cause in this world. I want to say to you, do not hold back then what strength God has given to you, even though you may feel that you are frail, God shows his power in jars of clay. In health and in weakness, God works out his plans and his purposes. Go back. Go back to the, to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ when he taught his disciples to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Nathan would have said, that's the way to pray. That's the way to go. That's the way David went. Are those the uppermost burdens and desires of your heart? Those who are the friends of Christ and of his kingdom pray according to the way that Christ taught us to pray for the coming of his kingdom, the kingdom of his Father. Are we vigilant? Are we loyal? Are we men and women of decisive action? It will be displayed in the ways in which we pray those first three petitions in the Lord's Prayer. I believe that Nathan was such a man. David despite all his weakness, was such a man. May God make you such a man, such a woman. And that way, whatever the outcome is, whatever the crisis we face, we will see the kingdom of Christ maintained and progressed 
in this world. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we are here for? To serve God faithfully in this generation. May God help us. Amen. Give us grace, we pray, our God, to wait upon you in order that we might renew our strength from you. Lord, we are weak. We are frail. We are conscious, our God, that our life and our days here upon this earth are very short. And our strength ebbs away day by day. But you are seated upon your throne. Lord Jesus, you are exalted high above all the kingdoms of this world. And Lord, we pray from your throne, strengthen us and enable us to serve you faithfully in this generation. Lord, we pray as we cast ourselves upon you, build your church, build your kingdom, and it please you to use these earthen jars of clay. Then, Lord, do so for your own glory, we pray. Amen. Amen.